So just as a little context, Amita is someone who's done really incredible things. So this might be a slightly long bio. Um, they, they, oh yeah, and also I'm going to use the personal pronoun they as that's Amita's preferred pronoun. They are an educator, storyteller, activist, and consultant dedicated to fighting interpersonal and institutional violence against young people. Their commitment to their work stems from their experience as a genderqueer, femqueer woman of color, daughter of immigrants, and years of abuse by their parents, including eight years of rape by their father. Amita is formerly the Los Angeles Executive Director of Peer Health Exchange, a national nonprofit dedicated to empowering teens to make healthy decisions. She's also the co-creator of Secret Survivors, a theater project featuring sexual abuse survivors telling their stories, which they conceived for Ping Chong & Co., an award-winning performance company in New York in 2012 and 2013. And more recently, Amita testified on Capitol Hill about Jeff Sessions, Amita was triggered by Sessions' initial comments that Trump's actions weren't sexual assault when hot mic tapes were released of President-elect Trump describing forcibly kissing women and grabbing women by their genitals. Amita urged Congress not to have this perspective held within someone who would lead the Department of Justice. Today, Amita is working on Mirror Memoirs, an oral history project centering the narratives. Heal oh, sorry. Today, Amita is working on Mirror Memoirs, an oral history project centering on the narratives, healing, and leadership of LGBTQI survivors of color in the movement to end child sexual abuse. So clearly, very impressive, Amita. I'm really excited to chat with you. So just tell me a little bit, what's exciting to you and on your mind these days? I think as a survivor of sexual violence who's been doing work to end sexual violence for the past 20 years, what I'm really excited about right now is the fact that we're in a cultural and mass media moment where instead of talking about individual survivors' stories, we're finally talking about the epidemic of rape and sexual violence and rape culture and how to shift it. And that, to me, is a first and a really exciting opportunity for all of us who have been survivor leaders in the work to end sexual violence for a long time to really push our work forward and, and more importantly, um, to get closer to a world in which sexual violence doesn't exist. What do you think has enabled us to be at this moment today? What's led to that? You know, there's such a long history in the United States of um, women and particularly black slave descended women pushing back against the history of sexual violence in the United States. So I think all credit goes to uh, the number, mass number of women of color, again, especially black women on whose shoulders we stand in this moment from the Cumbahee River Collective and Kitchen Table Press uh, to, you know, the work of Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, of course, people like Audre Lorde and June Jordan, and the way that so many of them influenced other uh, women of color, including trans women of color, you know, Sylvia Rivera, who was a trans Puerto Rican woman living in New York, um, spoke a lot about being a survivor of sexual violence. And she spoke out about sexual violence in prisons against trans women of color specifically. Uh, so, you know, there's been just so many women uh, and trans femmes telling their stories for decades, if not hundreds of years, um, in a way that I think has created the model of storytelling as an organizing tool that so many of us are using today. Great. Well, it does sound like um, a lot of history to be 
standing on the shoulders of and both the positive parts of, of stepping forward as well as the negative parts that this is happening. So it's great context. And I guess I would love to hear, how do you describe the, the work you're doing to create change today? Sure. Uh, I think as a survivor of childhood sexual violence and specifically rape in the home that I grew up in, um, my story and the stories of so many people like myself are still not being centered in even mainstream work to end sexual violence that's being covered on, you know, the five o'clock news right now. And the thing is, childhood sexual violence is incredibly pervasive. It, it affects at least 20% of the United States population, and that's a CDC statistic. And what we know about that violence is it's actually um, male assigned at birth children, meaning when a baby is born and the doctor looks at its body and says, that's a boy. Uh, those children who actually are feminine or gender nonconforming in some way are the ones who are most at risk of experiencing sexual violence before the age of 18. So I think right now in the mainstream media discussion, we have this unidirectional arrow of harm from men towards women and girls. And what we know in, in reality, when it comes to childhood sexual violence, it's, it's actually gender nonconforming boys or trans feminine girls who are being harmed at the highest rates. We also know that, unfortunately, adult cisgender women also commit sexual violence and rape against children. And right now that's not being discussed in the media at all. So in a project like Mirror Memoirs, where I'm saying to gender nonconforming, transgender um, and queer people of color who were harmed sexually as children, uh, that they can share their stories across gender lines. Um, we're really hearing the complexity come out in our audio archive. And I'm lifting up and training people who have told their stories in Mirror Memoirs to become leaders in the movement to end sexual violence. And I'm really excited about that collective power that I think this project is injecting into this work. And what is this? what are these new voices when you're able to go beyond the simple stories that the media is telling into these more complex realities. How do you see that as um, a, an important step forward for making more change? I think one of the most important contributions of Mirror Memoirs is that most of the people who are telling their stories in the project have not only been harmed in their families and intimate communities that they grew up in, but they've also been harmed by the institutions that are supposedly set up to help survivors. So for example, the criminal legal system, uh, we see queer and trans survivors of color being harmed by prosecutors, being harmed by police officers, um, actually being raped and sexually assaulted in mental health hospitals as children, uh, being raped or sexually assaulted in juvenile detention centers, being raped or sexually assaulted in foster care homes if they're sent into foster care homes, uh, and then experiencing more rape and sexual violence on the street if they run away from home to get away from violence that they're experiencing there. And I think we have a mythology in this country about... Um, the prison system, about the criminal justice system being something that's good for survivors to rely on. And this project really exposes um, the fallacy there and forces us to think about other models of healing and justice and accountability. Mm. So where do you feel safety then, if, you, if not just the people who are harming you are, are making you unsafe, but also the institutions? How do you develop... Um, as a survivor or how do you hear about other survivors developing 
the, the sense of safety that can help you recover? That's a great question. I think the challenge of being a queer or transgender person of color in the United States is that there really isn't um, a reality of safety. Uh, you have to build your resilience around um, knowing how to survive a world in which true safety externally is not really possible. And so what do we know about the human brain and nervous system around safety, right? Internally is um, we can strengthen our limbic system. We can uh, learn how to cope with being in a state of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, we can heal our adrenal system. Tools like meditation certainly help. But I think most of all, for our community, more than a lot of others, we really need intimacy with each other. We need interdependence. We need emotional safety with each other. We need allies who are not queer or not trans or not people of color um, to leverage their privilege uh, in order to help us survive, whether that's financial interdependence um, or emotional interdependence or a combination of the two. Uh, you know, our lives are really on the front line in a way that a lot of communities are not. And so um, it's really important that we learn how to break out of isolation and, and build networks of support in order to survive. Mm. Well, it really makes me sad to hear that there's, you know, a community here that you're just all not feeling safe most of the time. And I'm really happy to hear that you're finding peer support and ally support. Yeah, thank you. It's it is really um, a motivating factor on a daily basis for the work that I do. So I'd love to get a little more personal. Um, these these conversations are often about the connection between what we're doing and how we're trying to change the world, and where that comes from for us personally, and the experiences that that bring us to these places. And it's very obvious for you that there's been some personal experiences from what you shared in your bio. Would you tell me a little bit about what the idea or term personal transformation means to you? I think there are a lot of ways to transform as a person in general. In my life, what has been most important is the transformation that leads me to be more whole and more embodied and more self-actualized. So the kinds of transformation and experiences that not all of them have been good or, or easy, but... I think even experiences of grief and loss and allowing myself to feel sad about the violence that I experienced as a child and a young person, um, really turning and facing those experiences and sort of walking through the fire uh, emotionally when I had enough resources as an adult um, to, to carry that weight um, have led me to be um, very embodied and, and very self-actualized. I really feel like I am shaping my life and uh, able to manifest my vision from a place that's deeply spiritual and deeply based on my lived experiences and knowledge and in solidarity with a lot of people who have a lot less privilege than myself who have trusted me with their stories. That's fantastic. You've been able to find that um, and feel that way. So one of the things that's really interesting to me is those moments when you do feel like you have enough resources, when something shifts in, in the world, in you, in what's happening. And I don't know if there's uh, specific moments that come to mind for you, but in reading and learning about you, there was one quote I want to read you um, from an interview you did with 
Bushra Rehman. You tell her that at NYU in grad school, which is where we first actually met, so that's fun, you began studying policy change for, for sexual assault for the first time in a decade. And I don't know if this resonates with you, but seeing that, it just made me wonder if that was one of those moments somewhere in, in grad school where there was one of these personal shifts. And I'm just curious if it does resonate with you, what made you decide that that was a time to, to look at the broader implications of this personal experience for yourself? It's a great question. You know, you have to backtrack to the earliest moments of my career to really understand why there was a 10-year gap in my involvement in the policy side of uh, work to end sexual violence. So when I was in college and I was, and I went to Georgetown to the School of Foreign Service, which is a very policy-driven school, of course, it's in Washington, D.C., and um, I was processing and trying to put language to the experiences of violence that I had lived through for the first time. I started college when I was 17. Um, and so I was still pretty young and my dad had only been out of my life for a year at that point. So I was starting to experience the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder without understanding anything about it, not knowing anything about neurobiology, not having the words for it. And at the same time, um, was really interested in getting involved in policy work around survivorship. Uh, Bill Clinton was president at the time and <clears throat> um, Senator Biden, you know, who went on to of course be vice president Biden had just sponsored the violence against women act, which passed in Congress for the first time in 1994. So when I was a sophomore in college, uh, the summer right after sophomore year, I had the chance to intern at the violence against women office that was created through that legislation at the U.S. Department of Justice. And that was an incredibly eye-opening experience for me because it was the first time I learned how prevalent domestic violence is, how prevalent child sexual abuse is, um, the sort of failure of the system to properly address it. We got phone calls all the time at that office from mothers um, sobbing about the fact that the man who had raped their child um, now had custody of their child because this was the man that they had been married to. And in most of these cases, these men uh, were high up in the military uh, or were judges or prosecutors themselves. And with the blue wall of silence, you know, they were heavily protected by other law enforcement practitioners. So these women were losing custody of their children to their rapist husbands who happened to have power institutionally as well. And so for me, that really resonated with my own experience of just different ways that the criminal legal system failed in, in my case. Um, I went through mandated reporting as a child survivor when I was 13, and it was not a good experience. And so that's really where I first got fired up to do policy level work to try to change institutional responses to sexual violence survivors. And I had a great experience at the Department of Justice. I was very idealistic about it. I worked at the Campus Women's Center the following two years. I became someone who helped lead Take Back the Night on Georgetown's campus expanded it to include programming around child sexual abuse, helped start one of the first support groups on campus for child sexual abuse survivors. And then I got my first job out of college, which was for a national legal advocacy nonprofit that still exists today that I think would describe itself as a feminist kind of law center. And they lead trainings for judges and prosecutors around 
experiences of sexual violence survivors being re-traumatized when they go through the criminal legal system. And the training is really rooted in understanding the neurobiology of trauma. And so that was really exciting to me on surface level, because of course that was my own experience. And so to be able to contribute in some way, even as an admin assistant or a program assistant in that work, you know, an entry level job out of college, um, I, I had all kinds of idealistic notions around what that would mean, how that would be joining the movement and an entry point into this work and a way to contribute my story. And, and what I found instead, unfortunately, um, which is still the case at a lot of national level or statewide level nonprofits that are doing work to end sexual violence um, was a very professionalized environment that pathologized survivors and really saw survivorhood as being a victim um, and someone who was in need of services instead of the reality, which is that most people doing work to end sexual violence are survivors. That's what draws us to the work um, in the first place. But there's been a real professionalization of the work over the past 20 or so years where it matters more now to have a law degree or a master's degree. Um, and you're seen as in many of these organizations, you're seen as less professional if you come out as a survivor. So it's very counterintuitive. And, um, that was for sure happening at that nonprofit. Um, there was also a lot of racism and white supremacy happening and the three attorneys of color who were on staff, uh, ended up leaving during that short year and a half that I was there. So, um, it was, it was just really not a very supportive environment for me as a young woman of color, as a, a young survivor who was looking for mentorship and looking to join a social movement. And I got very disillusioned with the way, um, work to end sexual violence was being done in the United States. And I left the movement for a really long time. I became a youth organizer I started leading campaign work with um, high school students throughout New York City, and I loved that work. I did it for 10 years um, before I went to graduate school. But of course, when you're working with young people and you're gaining their trust, what you're hearing all the time is disclosures of sexual violence and other forms of violence, other forms of child abuse. And every time a young person would come out to me as a child sexual abuse survivor, I would come out to them not because I needed them to hold space for me, but rather because I wanted them to understand that they weren't alone. And after 10 years of working with 5,000 teenagers throughout, mostly throughout Brooklyn high schools, um, I was really focused on wanting to create systemic level change again, right? Ultimately, I am trained as a policy practitioner. I knew I was going back to grad school to get a policy degree. My master's is in public policy and nonprofit and government administration, and I originally went to NYU thinking I was going to do education policy work because I had been working in schools for 10 years. But what happened was that my PTSD got re-triggered by being in graduate school. And I couldn't ignore the impact that um, sexual violence had had on me and the ways that it had shown up in so many of the teenagers' lives who I was also working with or had worked with. And it made me really curious about what had moved in the research and the practice in the decade that I had been out of that aspect of the work. And so that's a very long-winded way of explaining how I shifted my career once again to be more directly involved um, in the work to end sexual violence and started reading the research again and started writing my policy memos specifically about some of the institutional responses that were happening in 2008 and how they were different than where things were at in 1998 when I had been in college. So 
yeah, and that's what led to this, the creation of Secret Survivors, because I realized that even though the research had moved, we knew a lot more about the neurobiology of trauma and the widespread nature of adverse childhood experiences and specifically child sexual abuse in 2008 than we had before. Um, but there was still massive silence around child sexual abuse experiences. There was still not um, an easy mechanism for child sexual abuse survivors to come out of the survivor closet. And I realized that um, there was a lot of shame and stigma, and there still is, but especially even more so 10 years ago. Um, and that's why I partnered with an off-off-Broadway theater company um, to create a storytelling project specifically centering survivors of child sexual abuse. And that really set um, in motion the past 10 years of the work that I've been doing now. Mm. So powerful. Would you be willing to go a little deeper into, into that grad school moment? And um, when you're revisiting this, this policy, it almost reminds me of almost like an old book that you were really interested in that suddenly had new chapters or something um, where you're able to see that the research has evolved and you're able to reconnect back to some of the experiences and, and trauma that you've experienced. What did that feel like to um, kind of be reconnecting in this new way with something that's an old um, work area of yours, work interest? You know, I think when you are a subject of your own research, it always feels rather treacherous to dive back in because when, when the research is about trauma and it's about collective trauma it's about a pervasive rape culture that we are all raised in, whether we're survivors or not, and something that we don't really have many tools or language to talk about. Um, it's sort of the elephant in the room all the time. And for someone like me, that culture, that rape culture, um, directly played a role in my oppression from the age of four onwards, right? From the violence that like lives in my body, the experiences of violence that I still am healing from and, and will be healing from probably in some way for the rest of my life. So I think when I was first reading about and learning about and in the work to end sexual violence in the mid nineties, when I was in college, I was just getting diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder for the first time. You know, I failed an entire semester of classes around the time of my diagnosis, my junior year of college. And, you know, I don't come from money. I was the first person in my household to go to college. I was a scholarship kid. So to be failing classes and jeopardizing my scholarship was rather terrifying. And in the 90s, when you get diagnosed, I think it's actually still this way. It's something that really needs to shift and something I'm focused on in my advocacy. But I can say with certainty in the 90s, when you got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder as a survivor of sexual violence, even though PTSD is legally a disability under the ADA, even though when you get diagnosed with a mental health disability, you have entitlements to accommodations in the workplace and in schools. Uh, nobody, my therapist did not tell me about those things at all. I had to sort of learn that the hard way um, along the way as, as a worker and uh, later as a graduate student. So all they tell you is you have PTSD, you should come to therapy and keep working on it. And that's what I did. But um, we know from the research now around the neurobiology of trauma that you actually have to do a lot of somatic practices, which are body-based practices, not just talk therapy, if you want to move that trauma out of your limbic system and out of your nervous system. 
We also know, and this is a whole different podcast, but we also know that there's um, a lot of plant medicine, um, sometimes called hallucinogens or psychedelics, like ayahuasca, like psilocybin. Uh, now there's actually an FDA-approved clinical trial around MDMA, which is also known as ecstasy, um, around ways that those chemical compounds can actually heal your brain and your body after um, trauma, especially the kind of trauma that induces PTSD. So I didn't know any of that when I first got diagnosed. By the time I was in graduate school and um, starting to feel PTSD symptoms again, which for me really manifest in the academy as a student around writer's block and a lot of anxiety and insomnia. Um, I knew what was happening. I knew that I had legal rights to ask for accommodations. And NYU was very, very supportive. You know, my therapist and one of the deans at uh, my graduate school program worked together to get me the accommodations that I needed, which really were around timelines and, and the pace of the work. Uh, and I was able to be compassionate with myself diving back into the research and make sure that I was talking to friends and that I was going to therapy and that I was exercising and trying to eat well and um, doing creative work. That's really why Secret Survivors was so important to me is that it felt generative, not just reactive. I was not just consuming someone else's research. I was using art and storytelling as a way to fill in the gaps that I was seeing in the research. And that was very different than my college and early career experience, which felt a lot more um, passive or a lot more traumatizing. And that model has really continued today with mirror memoirs, where I, I think I'm getting even more refined about which voices I'm lifting up and creating a container and platform for that are um, almost entirely missing from research and therefore not represented at all in the formation of public policy, government programs, and institutions that survivors are forced to rely on and engage with. 